Heterodorks. 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 Hey, Turfalitos and Tranditas. It's Heterodorks. Como esta? Mayamo es Corina. Yo soy Turfalito. And you're listening to Heterodorks. <laughs> I was in the middle of animating the apocalypse, and I am so close to being done. I can almost taste it. Are you on the last book? Yeah, actually, I finished the last book, and now I'm going back and cleaning up things that weren't right about earlier ones. You know, you know what I would do if I were you, Nina? What? I'd rewrite the ending. The ending's great. The ending of the apocalypse? The ending's the best part. It's super vaginal. It's like it's like all of this unconscious longing for the great mother is is expressed. It's like the, it's like they can't help themselves. The most misogynistic patriarchs can't even help themselves and it just comes out in this really wet vaginal imagery that they have no idea probably that they're doing. I loved it. It was amazing to illustrate and I had no idea it was there until I did illustrate it. And then I was like, my God, <laughs> this is not what I thought it was. What are some of the things that you learned about the biblical imagery of the apocalypse as you were doing the project? Well, the biggest thing is that one, you know, all of these gates and rivers and fountains and tree of life that straddles the river and things like that that was the biggest surprise i guess and there have been other surprises but that that i think is the biggest well of course that's the one that i'm working on i am going to miss this project i'm looking forward to it being done so i can get on to new phases of it such as making the cards but i have had such a great hibernation this winter i've been so so in communion with my muse it's just been wonderful have you missed bicycling no because it's winter but it's winter's almost over so the bicycling okay. will begin and i feel like the bicycling was in fact really good preparation for this doing all of those centuries uh animating in huge long stretches has felt kind of like doing centuries how many centuries did you do Last year, 24 centuries. 24 centuries, wow. 2.4 millennia of centuries. And I only, I only aimed to do 10, or 10 centuries. Yes, I wanted to do a millennium because I thought if I do a millennium, then I can complete the apocalypse because it just wasn't happening. And so I'm just going to assume that the reason the flow was so great was because I did 24 centuries in preparation. I noticed that in your animations for the apocalypse that a base figure or a base unit that you use in a good number of your animations is this hooded man or a priest, I, I, maybe it is. Oh, he's not wearing a hood. That's his beard. That's his be on his head? Well, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a hairy Semite. He's a hairy Semite. W what can you tell me about that figure? He's a hairy Semite. 
He's, what, what, he's what does a that mean? man. He just, I mean, it's all this stuff with, you know, men, like generic men, the people. And I'm, you know, people are asking me, well, why aren't you showing any women in these crowds? And the answer is John didn't mention any women in the crowds. He only mentions three women or three female entities, the woman of the apocalypse, who's the figure that gives birth to something and is persecuted by the red dragon, the whore of Babylon, which I really enjoyed designing and animating. I feel like she has never been done justice in pictures and I have done her justice at last. And the new Jerusalem, who is the bride of the lamb, hence all that vaginal imagery at the end with all of her gates and spring and river and all that. And that's a new character. Well, it's the most recent one. Most that's recent the one. one that ends. Yes, but those are the only three characters referred to as she. Everything else is a he and a man. Man, man, man. The other thing is, you know, don't assume his gender. Like, if people are into not assuming genders, then that beardy guy, the beardy Semite, could identify as a woman. So if you are looking for women in the animation, you can just assume that some of them identify as women you can assume all of them identify as women and you know then it's no longer a misogynistic patriarchal document and this is all stuff you can see at uh, apocalypseanimated.com if you haven't visited it yet but yes. the, the horror of babylon nina what were what was your inspiration for the design because uh, there's parts of it that are it's somewhat hypnotic and very it's it's like a, a being constructed mostly out of sexual body parts. Well, yes, that was the inspiration. Uh, you haven't actually read it yet, have you? I have been more focused on your imagery as you post it rather than looking at the text. Yeah, well, the, the text is the inspiration. Uh, if you, It's unfortunate that it doesn't really get going until chapter six and chapters two and three are enough to put anybody off because they're incredibly boring uh but but once it gets going it's just nuts and the the horror of babylon is a kind of anti-venus a negative venus he john the author describes her in vicious detail and clearly despises her and calls her filthy and for you know kings fornicate with her and she just represents everything horrible what is it the the wine of her fornication uh makes everyone sin and and uh yeah it's it's nasty stuff uh, but he's apparently really into it. And the way she's normally depicted is just this lady use, you know, wearing whatever garb of the era of the artist that depict her. And that's fine. But she needed to be so much more filthy and really, really express the the hatred that John had for women and women's sexuality. So the way she's depicted is through the lens of, of John's eyes. 
Well, that's, I mean, it's the text. That's how John sees her. And also, you know, I have this background doing all these mother goddess figures, right, from Seder masochism. And this is a continuation of that. It's just she's a, a horror to John, but she's still the goddess. She's just a goddess feared and loathed by John of Patmos. Anyway, it was really fun to design her. She is basically a big vagina surrounded by breasts and legs. There's a lot of fire and blood and, and gore in the apocalypse. Does Is that fun to animate? Is it dour to animate? Like, how do you feel when you're assembling these violent animations? Uh, the fire... So to do fire, you need a base flame. And I made various base flames, but the hardest part about fire is just figuring out the design approach to the flame. Once you have a flame, you can repeat it and combine it in various ways. So it took a while for me to get the flame that I used in most of it. Then some of the, you know, I'm going back and editing and fixing up some of the earlier ones and the earlier ones, I didn't have the flame down yet. Uh, How does it make you feel when you're, when you're animating some of this violent imagery though? Oh, it's, in this case, animating everything, for the most part, felt like a kind of release. This was, this whole project was exactly what this kind of art is supposed to do for me, the artist. It, it discharges my own anxiety. The apocalypse is about collective anxiety about collective death and I have plenty of that and I also have my individual anxiety about individual death but everyone has apocalypse anxieties everyone is worried about the world falling apart institutions going down the toilet uh the state of the environment there's you know there's no end of things we can worry about because civilization is inherently unstable and always has been so people have always had that anxiety of the collective collapse and animating it gets it from festering place inside my head out in the open and it's like this lifting joy so it doesn't matter that the subject matter is grotesque and negative it's still it's still an expression of an anxiety or multiple anxieties that i really have and that i think everybody really has so by by making it visible i get a release and then i also get a well like the promise of a communal experience i mean and and thanks to the internet, I get that communal experience really fast. Cause like the moment I finish one of these, I post it online just to share it with people. And so I'm having this shared experience of the release of a collective anxiety. It's great. I've, I've just been so happy. You're not going to see me this happy again. The project's about to be done and I'm going to return to 
the banality of my life and which has very little socializing or everyday pleasures in it. I'm in this sort of protected cocoon working on the thing, but I'm going to go back to needing more human contact and activities and things like that and start complaining about that. But yeah, you, you probably will not witness this much sustained happiness in me uh, for a while, sadly. Well, maybe some other project that contemplates the end of the world will lift your spirits again. Well, this one, I mean, I have a lot more time to work on this one, right? I got to make the cards. I got to find somebody to make the app. And, you know, I'm gonna, just going to have a lot of production work to do. Maybe I'll design a book. But there's nothing like, you know, the thrill of making the, the base animations and the base designs from which everything else will come. What are these cards that you're talking about? I'm going to make, as an experiment, a set of lenticular playing cards. Lenticular means that they can have more than one image on them. Unfortunately, the company that I'm using can only do two images, so it's not like they can do fancy animation. But I've never done lenticulars before. and These are the cards that you can hold at different angles and they kind of looks like they're slightly animated. Yes. Although they'll only handle two images through this process because I am cheap. And this seems like a good way to explore lenticulars as an experiment. And then maybe I could do more if I wanted. Uh, yeah. Lenticulars. They're like, they're like really, really teeny prisms, molded plastic prisms that are really thin and flexible. So set of lenticular cards and then a set of normal cards. They're all going to be tarot format because the tarot shape of a card is actually very close to the widescreen aspect ratio, which is what I've been working in. And who knows what people can do with these cards, but I know that I want to do spreads with them to do readings of my own personal apocalypse and other people can read their own personal apocalypse and prog progress as they would read tarot cards. I had some questions about some of your character designs. If Why, yes. Tell me about your character or your inspiration for your character design for the the godly figure. Oh, the Tesseract? Yeah, what's that about? Well, so he describes it as one who sits on the throne. Like he, First he says there's a throne surrounded by a rainbow, and then there's one who sits on the throne. So, And then he also describes him or it as a, as a like precious stone. Like he's talking about all this sort of light and precious stones and crystal and things like that. So I thought, well, what would, this is like a jewel, right? Mm. Like a jewel, but also God. And I just thought, well, a Tesseract looks sort of like a diamond or could look sort of like a diamond, but it's also a Tesseract and, you know, multi-dimensional, so, and I could put it on a throne. And I remember reading the word tesseract in the book, the, A Wrinkle in Time, but what is a tesseract? It's a four-dimensional cube. Ah, like a, a square is a two-dimensional object and a cube is a three-dimensional object with all the same length sides. A tesseract yeah. is a four-dimensional object that has all the same length sides. Right, yes. 
not that I really, so there's these animations of Tesseracts and to animate it, I was really frustrated because I couldn't find a, a real clear way to animate it. Like a, I couldn't find a, I couldn't find the inherent pattern that would make sense to animate it. So I used brute force and I found an animation, a wireframe animation of a Tesseract. And I just used brute force and sort of traced it with lines in my 2D program. Uh, but these things are generated by 3D programs. And I guess the, the 3D object is the shadow, the 3D shadow that the 4D Tesseract would cast. And of course, I'm working in 2D. So it's the 2D shadow of the 3D shadow that the 4D Tesseract would cast. You know, it seems like a good metaphor for for the divine. And you also have a, a character that so, is sort of a little bit goat-like, but it's the lamb. That's right. The lamb of God, which has seven eyes and seven horns. And is when bleeding as as if just slaughtered. One of the first things the lamb does in Revelations is unbind the seals. The, yes, the book of seven seals, which no one can open except the lamb. And at first, no one can open it at all. And John the Patmos is so sad, he's weeping. But then the lion of Judah shows up and is the lamb. That's a, a, quite a spectrum of identities for a creature like that, a lamb and a lion. Yes. The writing is so densely visual and weird. It's like nothing else I have ever read. But again, those, those chapters two and three, boring. Just skip them. Well, when you get to the lamb, the lamb seems so thrilled to break the seals. And that was one of my favorite parts is how fey the lamb is just <laughs> snapping all of these seals, knowing that it's going to bring all sorts of havoc to man. Yeah. If you want a good laugh, you should see other interpretations of revelation and other ways that the lamb is depicted. You just can't, it's like the, the subject matter is so violent and grotesque. But there's this lamb, right? Like it, it has to be cute. You can't draw a threatening lamb. Well, this one's not. It's it's a mischievous lamb. But all all lambs are are they're either cute or they're I mean some like medieval illustrations with all the seven eyes and seven horns they do get kind of weird. You might say they're a bit creepy, but still a lamb. I mean, I saw this movie adaptation of Revelation from, I think it was from like 2000, 2001. And they had a lamb in it and, you know, it was just so cute. They had blood coming out of its neck, but at various times it was going to go like, Bang! it was just so cute. One of the figures that shows up in a number of the animations is a running horse. And I'm not an animator, but I do sort of have a memory that one of the beginnings of animation was a film of a horse running. 
And that film uh, established that it's the case that when horses gallop, that all of four of their legs leave the ground, all, all, all of their feet leave the ground. Yep, that was Edward Moybridge, who shot that first horse in California near Stanford. And it wasn't just the beginning of animation, that was the beginning of motion picture film. When you were animating that horse, was that on your mind that you're sort of calling back or, or bring, bringing to the future that sort of original animation of a horse or picture of a horse? Well, always to the point where I don't even acknowledge it consciously, but it's always there. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's one of those collective cultural things that I think we all have to some extent. But where I did recall it very intentionally was in my Moybridge horse animated quilt. And that's another thing that's going on right now in my life. This is like the Nina show right now. The other thing that's going on in my life is Pale Gray Labs, the home of the quilt art that I do in collaboration with Teo Gray. We're losing our lease and have to move. And Teo has decided that we are going to move two blocks south to Lincoln Square, the same place that has a store on the upper floor with a big no turf sign. But the good news is that I will not have to sell the quilt plotter and the quilts can continue, including the Weybridge quilt, which is, uh, it's an animated quilt. I mean, it's animated if you take pictures of the squares and <laughs> you know arrange them in video. It's an animated quilt. But uh, I have that one on my wall here. And yes, it has all of the Weybridge horse gallop phases, 12 of them. This new establishment that's going to be set up with all of Teo's and yours equipment, is this the technology engineering research and fabrication space? No, it's Teo's entrepreneurial research and fabrication space. Great. That's a, that's a good name for it. He, he agreed that that would be uh, the name for it? No. Uh, he refuses to name it that. And I said, I'm going to call it that anyway, because when we had the space, well, you know, the, the previous space, the bank vault that we converted to the world famous quilt vault, Teo would refer to that as the sex dungeon. And I reminded him of that. And I said, look, if you call that the sex dungeon, I'm calling your space. Teo's entrepreneurial research and fabrication space, whether you like it or not. I hope that he considers taking that name. It's a fab fabulous name. It is. Teo's entrepreneurial research and fabrication space. I hope he chooses that. Yes. He actually has a laser cutter which is not going to be able to go to that space because a laser cutter produces plastic fumes when it cuts acrylic mm. and you need special ventilation for it. And it's unlikely that ventilation will be available in the new space. So he's going to have some other space for just that device. But I was thinking about 
commissioning a set of clear acrylic letters, like the ones in the window of the art coop that are made of wood. So the art coop's letters spell out no turfs. And I thought, well, this set of letters could spell out no turfs, or it could spell out no art coop. <laughs> I like that. Have a little war inside of the antiquated mall. <laughs> it's a very sad mall. It is. That's why the rent is so cheap. It's a miserable place. Be a very sad little war setup. <laughs> two two uh, pretty much vacant storefronts just facing each other down. <laughs> I'm a bad person. You're an influencer. Well, I did influence somebody this week. Yes. Many people, I think. A couple of people. At least one that I know of, though. <laughs> uh, so I gave testimony two weeks ago in Indiana at the Education Committee in favor of a bill that would limit the participation of uh, being in girls' and women's sports to individuals who are biologically female. Now, setting aside that we have had a lot of problems getting a good definition of biological female. Let's just assume, by and large, that means the people who we know who we're talking about, not boys, not people who are clearly boys. Yeah, we haven't even had that hard a time. It's just that I think we have a pretty easy time, but then there are very small exceptions that are crazy-making to a lot of people. Yes, so crazy-making that they have effectively become crazy in some cases. Yes, I think the definition still stands. I think human female, pre non-adult, young human female for girls and adult human female for women still makes a lot of sense. But there are these exceptions, very, very, very tiny numbers of them, but they're, yeah, driving people nuts. Their That's existence right. drives people nuts. Even though they don't have them. They don't have nuts. Well, no, they have they have po possibly tiny little proto nuts. Yes, they have they have hormone producing glands. Yes, that do not produce sperm apparently. Our friend Manish Yadav, who we interviewed here, he actually found studies of mice. Studies of uh complete androgen insensitive mice. Because it's actually, you can't do it in humans, but you can, in fact, breed mice to have androgen insensitivities, complete and partial. And so he shared with me some studies about this. And apparently female mice can have complete androgen insensitivity if they are created in the lab mm. to do that. So this whole question that I asked Carol Hooven about whether females can have complete androgen insensitivity turned out to be a really flummoxing question, not just for Carol, but for everybody. I don't think I've ever asked a question that I thought would not be that complicated that apparently is extremely complicated to answer. 
it's one of those questions that has to, you have to dig out a lot of information for it to even have the context around it, right? Yes. Yeah. I've gotten off track as talking about this often does. Right. You were testifying. Yes. You I was are testifying. testifying. I don't think we have to worry about minute groups of exceptions when we are talking about what you're talking about. Right. So so we're we're talking about the plain case of restricting the activity of girls' sports to people who are clearly not boys, to people who are who are female. Mm-hmm. Doing that was a little challenging, uh, just because I'm trans and I was standing in front of a large group of ACLU supporters who were in the chamber. And although I don't consider it to necessarily be that courageous of an act, because I think it's equal to whatever amount of courage it takes to just give up to give testimony, period. Even the people who I disagreed with, it takes them courage to get up and, and say their truth as well. So there's nothing extraordinary about it. Uh, it's just public speaking, which is a little bit nerve-wracking. However, I was I gave testimony a second time this week, and somebody else came to give testimony, and she told me that one of the reasons that she was giving testimony is that she got some courage from seeing me give testimony last time. And that made me feel good because that was one of the reasons that I was giving testimony is to try to encourage, to give courage to other people to come up and offer support for girls' sports. Thank you for your service. I even got a ribbon. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> it was, it's something that, I don't know. At times like these, if you don't say anything at all, you've missed your chance. And I, I just don't know how else to put it. Yep. And some people have taken your service as an opportunity to get mad at you. Well, because there you are, another man speaking for women. Here's what's interesting about that, Nina. I think it's fair for people to offer that criticism. And then I think it's also fair for me to not just say that they're wrong, but to hold it and look at it and judge it. Is it fair criticism? Well, for one, as part of the testimony that I gave, I made it clear that I was speaking on the issue, not as a woman, but as a transsexual, as a male. Two, this is a matter of public legislation. So any citizen has a right to actually get up and offer some testimony about it. It is something that impacts males by restricting them from competing against girls. So it is not strictly a women or girls issue. Even though it is principally about protecting their rights, it is also about restricting boys from being able to play on, on their teams. And in that sense, because I was a teenage transitioner, I have a point of view 
that is pertinent to this legislation. So I was not speaking for girls or on behalf of girls. I was speaking as a trans male who would have been affected by this legislation had it been brought when I was in school. And I'm, I'm offering that point of view on it. So I hear the criticism that I was uh, allegedly speaking for women or girls, but I, I don't think that's really the case. When I first met you, just before I met you, I had a conversation with Lisa Marciano saying that I was looking for a token trans that I, I knew that tokenism is, it's considered a bad thing, but I, I needed it. I needed a token trans, <laughs> all these accusations of transphobia. And I, because I knew from my past actual trans people that hadn't been acting that crazy, I just thought, yeah, I, I need someone with this identity on my side to, to be listened to by these raving crowds. And, you know, two hours later, I met you. And I was like, hooray, I have found my token trans, <laughs> which is now called a pet trans in That's the right. current Turvin lingo. Uh, so as, as terrible as tokenism is, you are, you are really doing an important service as a token. I mean, yeah, you're speaking as a, as a trans person, which is necessary in these conversations because it, it quickly shuts down a line of argument that is obnoxious. When you testified the first time, shortly before you testified, there was that horrible male legislator that that implied that women were wrong in not talking about transsexuals or trans women. Of course, this poor guy doesn't know that yes. the goalpost had been moved and that transsexual isn't a word that he should use. That's right. But that was Representative Ed Delaney. Yes, but, you know, he was, is the word grandstanding? He was grandstanding on all this stuff. And it was just calling out for the words of a token trans to shut him up. Not that he'll ever shut up. He won't. He won't. But, there, there was somebody like that at the Senate committee as well. Oh, yeah. Yep, Senator Ford. We should not reject all forms of tokenism especially in activism it's a dirty business well let me take on that word token for a moment after my testimony this week as i was leaving i was approached by a very nice woman named tiffany who african-american lady who told me how much she appreciated what i was saying and we were talking a little bit she asked why i was getting up and talking some of the explanation I've, I've given already. And she said that she is somebody who her white friends look to as somebody who criticizes 
critical race theory. And we actually had a discussion about that we do not want to be perceived as just these token contrarians, that any arguments that we have, in, in my case against allowing trans-identified boys playing girl sports, in her case, not teaching critical race theory to school-aged children, our arguments should be able to stand alone without our identity mattering at all. I don't want to be a token in the sense that my words have weight simply because of my identity. When I'm bringing my identity into the argument, it is to say, despite my identity, these principles matter. I am not making a special case for myself because of my identity or my group. These, these principles are worth defending on their own merit and not because I, I want some sort of special carve out because of some affinity that I have. And so we talked about that and we were on the same page with that too. That's not going to stop people from seeing us as tokens or an uncharitably Nina describing us as tokens uh, because I'm, I'm not a token. I don't want to make appeals based on my identity. If, if I talk about my identity, it's to add an exclamation point to the rest of the sentence. Yes, that's a nice thought. And yet, in the world of identity politics, you know that you have an authority in this regard because you're, you're transsexual. I could say something and you could say the same thing. And if I say it, people will just instantly say she's a transphobic turf. And if you say it, they will have a harder time saying that because you embody the identity that they worship. And when you say the thing, they are constrained by their own belief system in the presence of you saying these things. So I totally agree that reasonable ideas should be evaluated on the basis of their reason. And we're talking about politics. We're talking about a politics that has become extremely identity oriented. So uh, I just say work it. I mean, when I was, I, I was using my God, I hate to call it an identity, but the, the fact that I was a filmmaker that had a, you know, critically successful feature film, Sita Sings the Blues, and I was a copyright abolitionist. And I was going to work that. These things actually were related. I mean, the, the fact that I was a copyright abolitionist had a lot to do with the fact that I had made this film. Uh, but, but all of the, the worst copyright abuses that were codified in law they would always say that it was to benefit people like me. It was for me, you know, these legislators, they were doing all of this on behalf of the, of the struggling artist who should be recognized for her work. Oh, they're, they're artist allies. Yes, exactly. They're artist allies ah. profiting like, <laughs> like crazy. 
And so I was in a, a position, because like a lot of the people that were arguing against copyright were people with legal backgrounds and, you know, thinker intellectuals, uh, some writers, but not very many people like me. So yeah, I was totally going to work that. I knew that other people that were in this conversation didn't have, didn't have the kind of moral authority that I had. It's not that my ideas were any better, but they were coming from me. Well, I don't know how you feel about this on, on your own part, Nina, but if I ever get to the point where I feel like people just want to drag me in front of a microphone because I'm a trans person who will say the things that they don't want trans people to say, I, I'll, just, I'll just say something else that makes everybody mad. Really? Yeah, I don't. I don't want to be the mouthpiece for the, you know, the anti-trans agenda that has the the friendly appearance on it. You know, I don't. I don't want to be that person. Well, no, but you have to be aware, though, of the. Surely you are aware that you have a that you are given a kind of moral authority. By. The same way, the same way a black person is given moral authority by critical race theorists. That is probably true. So just like I was told that I was speaking for women and girls, and I just didn't accept it, but I listened, I heard the criticism, and then I thought about it, and I came up with a reaction to it. Did, I didn't just reject it. I, I, I heard it and processed it. I don't want people to just a agree with me or accept what I'm saying because I'm trans. I, I hope that maybe there's a, an advantage that what I'm saying will get into their brains a little bit easier. But I, I really would prefer that somebody take the measure of my words and decide for themselves whether they agree or disagree rather than traffic on my identity of course you would prefer that but you know there were lots of people testifying uh men and women but lots of women testifying and you know that your presence there made a difference just because of your identity you are not saying anything that they are not saying you are not making any arguments that they are not making you are listened to and regarded in a different way because of your status as a transsexual. That's not fair. That's not right. That's how it is. That's how it is. And that's why a couple years ago I was looking for a token trans. I knew it wasn't fair. I knew it wasn't right. And then I talked to you and you said, I know it's not fair. I know it's not right. <laughs> and look at us now. The Turf and Tranny have a podcast with more than 20 listeners now. We do. We've got 21 as of this week. And actually, I think this would be good to do a quick shout out. Big thanks to Levi, 
Jennifer, Sally. Thank you, Norman. Uh, thank you, Oksana or Ohana. I don't know how you pronounce that. Sarah, Amy, LF, whoever you are. Robert, Brenda, Jackie, other Sarah, and Candace. Thank you, everybody. Nina and I are going to see each other this weekend and have some delicious Chinese food at Golden Harbor. And we will thank you again as we're having our delicious Chinese food. Yes, indeed. We appreciate it so much. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.